Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, we're going to have a focused episode on bipolar disorder and the role of a ketogenic diet in the therapy of bipolar disorder. And we're going to hear from three individuals. First is Matt Bazuki, who has an incredible personal story of his journey through bipolar disorder and how lifestyle treatment, including a ketogenic diet, really helped him come out of it and back to a normal lifestyle, as he calls it. We're also going to hear from Dr. Ian Campbell, who himself has a history of bipolar disorder um, and now has transitioned as a PhD doing research on a ketogenic diet and bipolar disorder. And then finally, we'll hear from Dr. Chris Palmer, who's been on the Diet Doctor podcast before, uh, to get his perspective on how a ketogenic diet and lifestyle therapy in general fits into bipolar treatment. Now, bipolar disorder is a very common disease. And first, what is it? Well, it's it's classically been called um, manic depressive disorder, and there are a couple types, but bipolar one means you have some mania and some severe depression. You, you cycle through both. Bipolar two is more of the depression um, part of it, but they're certainly related um, in terms of the, the cycling of mood disorders, and it can be a debilitating condition. And as you'll hear, you know, uh, from Matt Bazuki, he he was homeless and could not lead a normal life and was debilitated because of this disorder. But it's very common, it occurring in 2.8% of all adults and 5% of adults in the age of 18 to 29. And that's usually the age range where it manifests and where it's first seen. Um, and treatment consists of a slew of medications with a slew of side effects, but these medications are really important because they can help people in the acute episodes and really kind of help stabilize. But what you're going to hear a lot through this episode is the problem is lifestyle interventions can be so impactful, but really aren't discussed enough. And there is this little battle, right? If somebody is having a psychotic episode, the ability to get them to um, change their lifestyle is really hard, right? They have to be in the right place for it. But it's still something that should be discussed more often and the specific types of lifestyle interventions need to be discussed more often and coaches to help people through or nutritionists or you know a, a multidisciplinary approach that really doesn't exist very much right now. So I think that's a big push of this episode and the message that our three guests are trying to get out about the need for a multidisciplinary lifestyle approach for bipolar disorder. Um, so whether it's something you personally struggle with or you know somebody who struggles with, I mean, chances are with with 2.8% of adults having it, you probably know somebody who has been touched by, by this disorder. Um, and so this episode could really help sort of open your eyes or, or your clinician's eyes or their eyes to different treatment modalities. Now, the state of the research of ketogenic diets and bipolar disorder is very early, right? Right now it consists of case reports um, and mechanistic reviews, uh, but randomized controlled trials are being conducted as you're going to hear. So we're likely going to, to learn a lot more um, about the science of this disorder and ketogenic diets. So with that as an introduction, let's get into, get into our first interview with Matt Bazuki. Now he's gonna go through his story. Um, it's a remarkable story um, in and out of psychiatric hospitals, in and out of homelessness. His family had to find him living behind a dumpster um, and get him into a psychiatric hospital. And through this up and down journey, um, you'll hear the impact of lifestyle therapies that that really helped turn him around and get him back to his what he calls his normal life. Uh, so let's get started with the interview with Matt Bazuki. Matt Bazuki, thank you so much for joining us today on the Diet Doctor Podcast. Of course. Yeah, so I've, I alluded in the introduction to your your story, which is 
dramatic and frightful and inspiring sort of all at the same time. Uh, so I want to hear in your own words, sort of, you know, walk us through your journey with bipolar, um, both sort of the, the, you know, the downsides, the, the trouble you had and sort of your path out. And, uh, let, let's hear about your journey here. Okay. Uh, it's a long story. I, yeah. my first break was in 2016. Uh, this is my second semester of freshman year of college. And it seemed like my mood had been ramping up for a little while, for a few months. I had been partaking in a lot of activities that could have contributed to some sort of mood episode, manic episode. So I had, you know, I was pledging a fraternity the semester before and I wasn't getting much sleep and I was going days without sleep. And then I was um, eating a crazy sporadic diet, drinking a lot of alcohol, using drugs, etc. Um and overall, my life was just chaotic and marijuana, which I think of it can be very, um, very psychoactive. So it all kind of came together when I started sleeping less and less in 2016 in March, which is when the equinox is, when the days are getting longer and longer. Eventually, I, I came into a full psychosis and my parents didn't know what to do with me. Eventually, they took me to a psychiatrist who, you know, diagnosed or, or to ask me to take Zyprexa, I didn't want to take it. I was convinced that I was in some sort of spiritual test and that if I took the medication, it was a failure, so I couldn't take it, which is a very nefarious perspective and one that's not unique to me, I think, something that a lot of people with these kinds of illnesses have. And I struggled with medication noncompliance for years just as a result of these ideas, also the idea that... Um, taking medication was going to impede my spiritual growth, which I became very attached to that idea, which is unfortunate and took me a long time to move past it. I went to the hospital, um, I was in the psych ward for a couple of weeks. I had a forced injection mm. and then I, I came off the meds too quickly in my opinion, back to school, same thing that fall. And then I would have two more episodes. And there was a lot of like chaotic stuff that happened from that first episode in 2016 to my last huge manic episode in the fall of 2017. I was homeless for a little while voluntarily because I wanted to run away and do my own thing, which was really hard. I drank and used abuse, abuse substances a lot. I constantly was relapsing um, and having these psychoses and it's kind of unclear to me whether I actually reached some sort of baseline, um, a euthymic state. I think it was, I was mostly just, I was mostly just coming in and out of higher levels of mania, coming down to hypomania. And then, so I was had, had like a myriad of delusions throughout the whole, the whole couple of years. And I have a notebook with all of my manic thoughts. That's just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. And so eventually I came out of this, I was homeless in the fall of 2017. I was, I finally, my parents got me in the hospital. I came out and I finally had some moment of clarity. I think it was in about February of 2018 when I was 21. And I realized that this, something was very wrong with my life. And it was the first time I think in the history of the entire progression of my illness that I demonstrated some sort of insight some sort of real insight. And so that's what I think about when I think about staying 
healthy with type one bipolar is that I always have to maintain some kind of insight. And this is, I'll talk about the recovery a little bit, but what that means for me is that um, just briefly, if I, if I start to go into some mood episode, I need to catch it while I still have insight. This is very important yeah. Um, because there's this, there's this breaking point where I don't have insight anymore and it's become, it becomes virtually impossible to treat me. And that's when I end up in the hospital. That's when I end up, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol, all of that kind of stuff. So that was like two or two or three years into your, 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 your progress, your diagnosis before you had that moment of insight. It was like two or three years. Two, sorry. two years, yeah. two years of just abject chaos and, and horror and psychosis and mania. And oh, it was, it was terrible. That's gotta be pretty scary for you to reflect back on. And like you said, to read your journal and think like, wow, these were, this was me doing this. I mean, that's gotta be really sort of just awakening and scary at the same time. Just very scary and um, gives me a huge respect for the illness and um, reminds me that I do have to be pretty careful with my lifestyle, even now, even, you know, a few years out. But yeah, it was, it was terrifying. Um, and I was very lucky that, you know, a lot of people who have like bipolar, these kinds of illnesses, if you can catch it in the first few years before your brain has a deep, these deep ingrains of, you know, the moods and, and then it just, it just wants to keep it, the moods just want to keep going. Then I have a good chance. So I, I was lucky I got it when, when like the first two years and then I, I nipped it. Yeah. Like I do believe I nipped it. You know, I nipped it when I was 21. I'm very lucky. I have a chance for normal life now, but if they had continued for years and years and I'm so lucky, my parents were so um, aggressive in, in getting me treated um, but those two years were, yeah, those two years were really, really just horrible, horrifying mental illness. Yeah. But, but even once you had the insight and once you were, um, started on treatment, um, was it, you know, smooth sailing from there or was it still sort of an up and down rocky course? And what, uh, what was the initial treatment? I imagine it was mostly just medications to start. Is that right? It was medications to start. And yeah. my parents had tried me on a lot of treatment centers that didn't do things as well as I thought. They could have some were to, some took me off meds too fast. Some weren't proactive enough in getting me to do things with my life, and I would just sit around all day. None were great. That none of the diets were um, perfect. Some of the diets were horrible at these treatment centers. Hmm. So it was a it was a process of just it, it was like establishing one healthy habit after another, then just gently moving towards. Um, a real, real uh, robust health. So the first thing was exercise. Like that's like exercise was the real initial meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing I started doing and it really helped me as a, not just as an antidepressant, a natural antidepressant, but as a mood stabilizer, I think, or as, you know, affecting both as, as an anti-manic and an antidepressant. So I started exercising, hard cardio, swimming mm-hmm. regularly, so I did, I, when I started doing that and I started doing it regularly, you know, four or five times a week plus, and I committed to it. And I think this happened as a result of, of having some insight where I had some insight about the illness. I realized I had to get better. And this was just the most essential bare bones, um, action that I could take. 
my sleep still wasn't perfect. I was still smoking cigarettes. I was still drinking sometimes. It was still, a lot of things were in place, but I started exercising. And so that set the tone for the recovery as I continued to do that month after month after month. And gradually I would come to um, bring in other habits as well. You know, um, quitting drugs and alcohol, quitting smoking, and then eventually, and getting my sleep in order, and eventually keto. And that's basically, and meditation. And that's like it. Those, you know, the, the five, 10% that yield the 90% of my results, the most essential things. And of course, working with a psychiatrist and, and taking the meds. So, so let's focus on diet for a second here, because you mentioned during your treatment, some of the diets were horrible. So what, first of all, it's great that people were even trying to focus on nutrition, because I think that's something that maybe isn't really talked about enough, but the key is finding a diet that's going to work for the individual and is going to help with, with the condition. So what were some of the dietary approaches that were recommended to you that you, and, and why didn't they work for you? I did not get a, um, a specific recommendation, dietary recommendation to treat my bipolar illness until fall of, um, 2020. So I, they had, so it was basically the SAD at a lot of these treatment centers I went to and I didn't know any better. And I guess I wasn't ready to take on a, a, a real significant dietary change. So I was eating, you know, flour, sugar, grains, like these places which serve extra root beer and the psych wards, they got all these sodas in the, <laughs> in the fridge. I mean, it's almost like criminal for me when I think about it, looking back, but my mom, you know, she heard about keto. She was reading about it, and she came. She she came across Dr. Palmer, and so I, I started working with him with the dietitian, and then eventually I went on keto January third of twenty twenty one, just about a year and a half ago, and I was ready to commit. I think because I had established a lot of these healthy habits already. I had quit smoking cigarettes about three months prior. I quit drinking. I was exercising ready regularly. My sleep was in, in good shape. And I was like, right, okay, I got to take on the diet piece. Um, and, and we can talk more about keto and how it worked wonders for me yeah. um, as an intervention. But I think it's very sad that I was not immediately given some sort of rudimentary dietary advice when I was diagnosed. And I was just, I mean, I wasn't even told and that this could have such an impact on my mood. Yeah. But I kind of had to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, that's part of what makes it an amazing story is it, it was basically you and your family had to figure it out on your own. You weren't given that guidance. But I think you sort of alluded to this. What if you were given this advice six, month, six months earlier? Do you think it would have stuck? I mean, or, or you, you know, do you have to be in the exact right place to be able to take on that type of dietary change? Or do you think if it was earlier, it wouldn't have had the same impact or the same ability to stick with it? I think if it had been far earlier, a couple of years earlier, I, I don't think I would have done it. But I, I agree with you. I think the timing was perfect that I had just made all these these cha changes in my life and then a diet came along and it was like, okay, this is the next thing to do. It's a huge piece. Keto takes a lot of discipline, especially yeah. when my roommates, got, my roommates got all these carbs everywhere. So, you know, <laughs> it takes a lot. Um, however, if I, I think if I had heard about it prior, say I'd heard about it in 2018 or something, it would have lingered in my head. It would have been in my head like, okay, this is something I want to take on at some point. Mm -hmm. And eventually when the time was right, um, and I was just 
I was committing 100% to my recovery and I wanted to, I wanted to get well, you know, I wanted to be well, I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be sharp. I wanted to be active. And I realized, I realized that sleep, diet and exercise was going to get me there. And the diet was the last piece that I hadn't really put in place yet. Yeah. So was it hard for you to start on a ketogenic diet? Was the transition tough for you? I was fortunate because I had a, we had a, a chef who was cooking meals for my parents, keto meals, who also cooked for me. So I think I had it easier. I think I had it easy in that I had these meals prepared, like super high fat meals that were just in my fridge all the time. And so I, I was, I'm very grateful for that. So whenever my roommates were eating pizza or pasta or burgers or with buns or any of the ice cream, any of the foods that I love, like I love these foods, man. I love all of these foods. I could go and pick something high fat, like really, really delicious high fat meals from my fridge and not just, not just, you know, uh, steaks and fish and eggs and all this stuff, but like keto pastries prepared with monk fruit and all this different kinds of stuff. So I was eating all that and I was tracking my ketones and I was pretty focused in locked in on this project, um, of trying to get my ketones to like 1.5 to 2.5 and keep them there initially. And I did that for many months until eventually I just stopped worrying about it, but it was a transition. And I think for me, the hardest part about doing keto was actually doing keto in tandem with um, drug and alcohol abstinence, because that's just a huge, it was a huge lot to take on for me as a 24 year old to just not just complete abstinence from any of those things because already, you know, I wasn't drinking at all. And then to throw on the no carbs, um, I had, a, I have a many, I, and I still do, sometimes have many, many moments of frustration where like my girlfriend was drinking beer and then she goes and eats pizza. And I'm just like, uh, at the same time, mm -hmm. I'm always full of gratitude. Um, because I know this is going to pay off, not just for my mental illness, but for my metabolic health, for my brain yeah. health, for all of these other things. So I'm just like sowing the seeds. Um, and it feels so good. It, there's something about eating well that just, feels so good. I mean, it really does. Yes. Yeah, so is, is there an element about making it, making you a little more socially isolated because of this or, or have you been able, able to overcome that? That's a good question. I try to impress on people that I don't want anyone to pick restaurants or anything based on my, my keto diet. I can mm -hmm. find stuff most places, you know, if you can find, you know, a chicken or, or, or something, a fish, whatever it is, or burger lettuce wrapped, I can usually find something and then I can come home and eat more if I need to. So I still go out if my roommates or whoever I'm going out to eat is totally fine. The element of social isolation is absolutely not being able to enjoy the foods with other people. So yeah. food and the experience of food is a very social, um, um, thing. People like to eat food together. People like yeah. to share the same food People yeah. like to comment about the food. People like to talk about how good the food is, where they're eating, what they're eating, mm -hmm. um, what it, you know, the best places. And I feel very left out of this, these conversations a lot. I really do. At the same time, I know that like 
you know, if people are talking about the next ice cream place where they're eating their ice cream and it's, they're coming out with this new flavor. Everyone's talking about that. I, 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 uh, it, it's not, it feels good to be walking my own path. Yeah. Like, and doing, uh, what I need to do, um, to stay healthy. And unfortunately I'm in a position where like, I really just don't cheat on this diet. I never do because I don't know what's going to happen. If like I ate a bunch of pasta right now, I don't know. I have no idea. So I, I, maybe I could get away with it. I'm just going to put a pin in that and <laughs> not deal with it right now. Yeah. But yeah, it is a little bit, it's a little bit um, hard to be excluded from all the um, food conversation. Yeah. So a lot of people, a lot of their success on a ketogenic diet has to do with controlling their environment and making sure the you know triggers and temptations aren't around. But the way you describe it, it sounds like you're constantly surrounded by these temptations, um, and yet you're continuing to hold steadfast and, and stay on the diet and not be lured by them, which is incredible. I mean, some people really struggle at doing that, but you seem like you are really maintaining it. So I think a big part of that likely has to do with the benefits you're seeing from it. So you, you alluded to when you started on it, on a ketogenic diet. So how did things change? How quickly did they change? How dramatically did they change? Like, what did you notice in that, in your progress there? Right. I think the, the only reason I can stay on it is because like you said, the benefits are so profound that it's just that much more motivating. And I yeah. know that it's basically the closest thing to a panacea aside from maybe exercise I've ever found for my, for my health. The, what changes did I notice? I noticed um, immediately I was able to stop fighting these small hypomanias that would come, start sleeping less and less, you know, wake up at 5am with a ton of energy. It's the, it's the classic story. And then I, I would document all this in my phone on my tracker. And then I'd say, okay, I have to take a little more Zyprex. I would take, have to take more. And so just to give you some numbers, I was taking 20 and I think I told you this already, but I was taking 20 milligrams of Cyprex in the equinox of, um, 2020. So it's the days are getting longer. Everyone's going manic, manic, manic. And I had to take that much. And I kind of, I kind of became very in tune with this illness and how it was affecting me. And I could, not only did I see the, the, uh, the anecdotal evidence that I was having going into some mood episode, like waking up early consistently with a ton of energy, dressing a little bit weirdly, spending a little bit more money, gambling, like all being promiscuous, all of the, even just a little bit, like I tracked a lot of these uh, behaviors in my log and I would be able to see, okay, the last, you know, four days uh, I've been a little bit up. I got to take more Zyprexa. Yeah. So I was taking, I was had to take 20, the momentum of the illness in March just wants to get me. It always does. It just was pushing, pushing, pushing me to pushing my mood up. When I went on keto that year, so last year, 2021, and I came into March, I coasted through on about five milligrams, 25% of what I had the previous year. My mood was stable. I was doing a hardcore ketogenic diet. So moderate protein, super high fat, under 40 carbs, hitting 2.5 millimoles in the evening, not smoking, not drinking, just really in a groove. And I, I went through with, like I said, 25% of the antipsychotic dose that I had been had to take the previous year. Yeah. Just solid. Just no signs of hypomania. It was it was gone. And I could not believe it because I had been Dr. Told me had Dr. Palmer had 
explain to me how effective this diet could be for someone with bipolar disorder. You know, in that fall when we were talking about it and we were planning for me to go on it and I was working with a dietitian, getting the macros in place, all this stuff. But when I actually saw this, I, I literally could not believe it. And then I just went through. And for the first time, as I started doing this diet month after month after month, I felt like my life was getting a little bit more normal. So I was starting to think about work and, you know, friends and normal things people think about instead of just worrying about this all day. That was the most rewarding part. And that's why I still am like such a faithful adherent is because I see, I see how well it works. And so it's just all worth it for me. Like it's, 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 I'm I'm getting tenfold what I give in and having to maintain the discipline because I want to get out of it. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits there to to review. So one is reducing the medication dose because let's face it, psychiatric medications have side effects, frequently weight gain, um, insulin resistance, but also sort of how you think and you know kind of maybe slowing down the mental process and some fatigue. So any lowering of dose has got to be a huge benefit um, to your lifestyle. Um, but also you mentioned about your thought process. Like it's got to be hard to have a job and focus on your music that, that you love to do and, and, uh, and, and have a normal, a quote unquote, normal social life. If you're always worried about what's going to happen with your, your mental health. But like you said, you, you, you could stop thinking about that and start focusing on sort of normal lifetime activity. So, um, I mean, tell us what you're doing now with your life that you couldn't have done before from a work standpoint, music standpoint, friend standpoint, whatever, you know, give us some examples. Oh, so, okay. Great question. A lot of things happened. So a lot of things happened in 2021 that set me up for what I'm doing now. So I came off of Valium, like it was very hard, but I came off it. I think it was far easier than it would have been if I was not on keto. I think there's something about the GABA and the effects of this diet that just tapering benzos. It could be a huge aid. Um, I graduated college, which was remarkable. I started dating a girl. I, um, all of these things, I celebrated a year without a drink. All of these things happened. And then, and I was doing keto and now it, my, my life basically looks like normal. It's insane. It's the best thing ever. Like I don't want anything um, crazy. So I go, I go, I work. I got these nice friends that I live with. Um, nice girlfriend, you know, exercise a lot. The, the erg swimming, running, lifting weights, um, getting really good sleep in a blackout room. We've got my blue light blockers and it's all just like, and I don't think about, um, I don't think about my illness nearly as much as I used to. And I'm not yeah. as paranoid and I still track everything in my little log, but I just, I'm not ruminating about it all the time. It doesn't take up all this headspace for me. I'm, I'm I don't even track my ketones. I just eat, just don't eat any bulk carbs. I just eat fat and I eat protein and that's it. And I can go out, eat Chipotle, you know, eat chicken with with guac. It's totally fine. So the fact that my life, this is, this was my dream. I think from when I first got that insight is to have um, a life and to be in a headspace that's somewhat normal, that's somewhat comparable to my peers, even though I have dealt with something so horrific and now that it's materializing, now that it's starting to materialize as a result of all this work and the discipline and the healthy habits and meditational as well, 
like this is just I, I mean I just I think I I got so fortunate to at the age of 25 now to be able to like move past this and and move into living a semi-normal or e- even really a normal life it's like a normal life you know all the pieces that anyone else would have and a mood that's stable and it's even funny like a lot of the time I feel like I'm so high energy now I have all this energy that even sometimes I, I think I have more, more energy than my peers as a result of just sleeping really well exercising uh, being on keto you know treating myself really well and so I, I frequently not frequently but occasionally think I'm I'm in some sort of elevation because it's an old habit to always be looking at my mood. I look at my sleep log with my aura ring and I'm like, boom, I was asleep from 11 to eight, you know, out the last three nights. And I'm just like, wow, this is remarkable to me. And my, and I don't wake up at 5am anymore. I sleep like a bear. It's crazy. (laughs) Now, now you're clearly very into the data and monitoring things. Do you think someone who maybe wasn't as into the data and didn't want to monitor things as, as closely, do you think they still could succeed um, by following a ketogenic diet, implementing life, in, uh, implementing lifestyle changes, and keeping uh, a bipolar diagnosis sort of muted or at bay? Absolutely. The power of just the power of even aside from sleep, the power of just doing keto and getting some physical exercise. Yeah. Those two interventions together are so powerful that I track all of these. I track a lot of metrics. You know, I look at like, did I have an elevation in the morning or the evening? Did I meditate today for how long, you know, my sleep was from when until when, like, I love to track all of this stuff because it's very important. And I look at it frequently, but to a certain extent, everything except maybe hours slept you know, did I exercise and maybe like ketone level, or if you want to track that is kind of superfluous. Yeah. Like the most essential thing is, am I doing keto and am I get am I moving, moving a little bit? Yeah. So yeah, I think you can have tremendous success just from like adhering to the diet and, um, running, you know, three days a week. I mean, I think that could be like transformative for, lots of people with this illness, just doing, doing those two things. Yeah. And you, you've mentioned it a number of times, but I think it's really important to emphasize that it's not just start the diet and everything clears up, but it's a, a combination therapy with other lifestyle interventions, focusing on your sleep, getting exercise, plus improving your diet and still managing your medications and working with your psychiatrist to, to make sure that's all on point. So it's not just a, a sort of a, a one, one tool fix, but it, it fits into the overall treatment program. Um, so looking back at your, your history and everything you've been through and trying to learn from that to educate others, which by the way, you're doing such a wonderful job doing with bipolar cast with, um, Dr. Ian Campbell and just being so open and vocal about what you've been through. What do you hope people maybe who are struggling with bipolar themselves or, or people who have a family member with bipolar, what do you want them to learn from this situation and how can they go forward to help themselves and be proactive the way you and your family were? The most important thing I think is just awareness about the diet. Like above all, I, I, I think there are a lot of people, you know, Ian and I agree that there are a lot of people who want to get better, who don't know what to do because they've been fed wrong information about, what you could eat or they're doing a vegan diet or they're doing something else. And this ketogenic intervention is evidence-based and 
metabolic psychiatry, I think is going to be huge in the next five, 10, 20 years. I mean, I think it's going to transform the way people are treated. And so the first thing we want to do is just spread awareness and say, look, there's a diet that could work for you. Obviously there are no guarantees. Not everyone responds to the ketogenic diet as well as I did. But if you're doing everything in your power, you know, seeing a psychiatrist getting treated with medication and a lot of people are doing everything they can, the ketogenic diet could be a powerful intervention. And also sometimes the energy from keto, just starting it can get you out to exercise and get some sunlight because especially if you're like, you know, bipolar two and you're depressed, like there's an energy imbalance in your body is virtually impossible to get up mm. and get exercise in that Good state, point. unfortunately. So I, I believe that the keto could work as a catalyst for some of the other lifestyle changes. And the and keto is the one that requires the least um, investment. It just requires some sort of willpower. So it's goes to the grocery store, getting a bunch of, you know, um, heavy cream and some eggs and some keto food. And then you just, you just stick to eating that. So even if the system is, there's an energy imbalance, if the intellectual self-will is there, then the, I think people can go on this diet, even if they're, you know, catatonic depression. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is just to spread awareness about the diet. And then I, I mean, a lot of what I do in my life I just want to show people that it is possible to have something like this happen and then rebound from it. And, you know, by doing a few good things, it's possible to live a normal life as a result. And I think especially, you know, I used to visit a lot of um, mental health groups and I didn't see a lot of examples of people in the groups really like living their best lives who are saying, yeah. look, it's possible. A lot of people are just still having a lot of symptoms. And of course, my situation isn't perfect, but I want to communicate that to people and give them hope um, that this can be done. So those are the two things. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so one other thing, sort of a bit of a transition here. What about the, the stigma of bipolar disorder and mental health? I mean, is there, was there concern from you when you started being vocal about this? And do you think there can be concern for others that you become that, that guy with bipolar or you've got that mental health disease, which unfortunately is, I think in society is frequently seen differently than somebody with high blood pressure or diabetes or something that there's a little more of a stigma. Were you concerned about that? And do you feel any of that now? That's a great question. I don't, I, I think I'm unique. I don't know why I didn't. I had no reservations about coming forward. I felt it was my responsibility to come forward and share my yeah. story. If even just one person heard it and, um, you know, we did that initial episode of bipolar cast where I shared it. I thought even if just one person hears this and says, wow, this can be done, then it would be worth it. Yeah. So I, the way I, the way I view this, this stigma, obviously there is a stigma. I, I kind of think like, you know, Ludwig Beethoven, Alexander Hamilton, there are a lot of people who had, this illness in history who were very remarkable people, Lincoln. So, you know, that's kind of cool. At the same time, I didn't, I, I more or less ignored the stigma because I viewed it as my res, like a responsibility to the world to come forward. Like it wasn't about me at that point. It didn't matter what I want, whether I cared about the stigma, whether I was afraid, whether um, I was going to be judged, whether I was going to be disqualified from opportunities in my life by coming forward. 
it was like something I had to do for the world and to try to, to spread this message and show people it's okay. And I agree that there's still that I agree with you that this illness is still viewed differently from high blood pressure and other things. I can understand that given that the manifestation of this illness is like mental dysfunction, which is scary. And there are a lot of people you see, you know, homeless and in the world where this is not, it, it disqualifies them from living a normal life and working a normal job. So I can understand why the stigma is there to play devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I want to, again, I want to show the world that you can be like remarkable, a powerhouse and really sharp and really motivated and better than a lot of the normies, even with this illness. So that's kind of where I'm working towards getting. (laughs) Outstanding. Good answer. Good answer. Well, I mean, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on the podcast with us today and just for all the information you're putting out there and how proactive you're being of trying to spread this message. And of course, your family being so wonderful, actually getting in and funding research um, the, the Bazooki brain research group. And, 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 you know, we, we do need more research for this to become mainstream. And so we're going to hear from some researchers, uh, coming up on this episode too, but I think it all starts with, with the personal story that people can connect with. And, um, you've been so brave and, and so eloquent about sharing your story. So, so thank you for that. And, um, I also hear your, you, you have a SoundCloud, um, a platform where you share some of your music so so people can experience more about who you are than just your story and your journey. So I, I don't know much about SoundCloud or your music, but I want to hear about it. So take a couple minutes to tell us about that before we finish up. I have, I have a SoundCloud with a lot of electronic music that I've produced in the last year. And just so people know, uh, creativity and creative intelligence and bipolar disorder often go hand in hand. So you might find that my music is oh very um a little bit more exciting than someone who doesn't have uh i'm just kidding it's um <laughs> it's um it's electronic music trap and edm and future bass yeah, i just make it for fun you know i have no i have no expectations man i don't i'm not gonna don't think i'm gonna blow up or anything it's just i'm making it for fun and posting it <laughs> awesome awesome all right well thanks again for joining us i really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story thank you Next, we're going to hear from Dr. Ian Campbell. Now, Ian has a PhD in global health from the University of Edinburgh. I probably pronounced that incorrectly. He pronounces it correctly with his accent, not mine. But he's the co-principal investigator of the first European trial of a ketogenic diet for bipolar disorder that's funded by the Bazooki Brain Research Fund. He writes about metabolic therapies and psychiatric illness on his blog, ketobipolar.com, and he co-hosts a podcast called Bipolar Cast with Matt Bazuki on metabolic therapies for bipolar disorder. And he's got another amazing story about first his personal story with bipolar and using that to transition into an academic and a research story about bipolar to really help further this field. And interesting how he sort of came upon a ketogenic diet, um, not in the way I expected, uh, and how that helped him in his personal journey as well. So, So let's hear from Ian Campbell. Well, Ian Campbell, thanks so much for joining us on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Great to be with you. Thank you. And so we just heard about Matt's pretty remarkable story 
Um, and of course, you and Matt are working together on the Bipolar Cast, doing the the YouTube videos, which I recommend everybody recommend for I recommend everybody check out for the for some really in depth interviews about bipolar disorder. But tell us a little bit about your journey, so we we know about you, and then we'll get into sort of the research studies that you're uh, looking into and running as well. Yeah, so I'm a PhD in global health researching bipolar disorder at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm actually also someone who was diagnosed with bipolar uh, type 2 myself, Um, bipolar type 2 being the the not-so-great sequel to bipolar 1, unfortunately. And I've lived with that for most of my life. Um, I first noticed it when I was quite young. I had um, depressive episodes, and all of my family were doctors and nurses and involved in medical care. So I I was very fortunate to grow up in a family where this was spotted quite early, and unfortunately, my uncle, it seems to run in the mother's line of my family, as bipolar often does. Uh, my, uh, I fortunately lost my uncle to suicide and my uh, grandfather mm-hmm. had dementia. And so the, the chips were not stacked in my favor uh, genetically. Um, however, um, over time, I came to try and understand the illness scientifically. And I wanted to understand what this thing was that was happening to me. I was going through... Um, very similar experiences to Matt uh, did, uh, as you probably heard in his interview. Uh, but bipolar 2 is more depressive. You go through uh, much uh, more and, and longer depressive episodes and less mania. And so I, I kind of would deal with this by kind of disappearing from the world, trying to... Uh, I, I was very fortunate to be able to sustain a career and to have a life, mostly due to tremendous support from people like my father and my wife, who were understanding of my condition um, and eventually I suppose I reached a, a decision point where I recognized that I wasn't going to survive this condition and it, there's a, such a thing in bipolar as catatonic depression and I guess one of the things I can give in my story that might help people is to describe from the perspective of someone with bipolar who also has a scientific understanding of bipolar what a depressive episode feels like and we're sort of told that with the best intentions when we have this illness that this is a sort of neurotransmitter imbalance in the brain and this is how we come to understand and conceptualize the illness but when you go through uh bipolar depression it's something it's quite a different beast of what has been described um it's really a sort of physiological state of emergency that the body enters and you really feel it grip you like a vice when this depression comes it's a very physical state that you can feel and it's accompanied by the markers of a physiological crisis in the body. There's indications of upregulation of glycolysis and increased lactate in the blood and the cerebral spinal fluid. Uh, MRS testing has demonstrated this. It happens in the brain, and this is an indication that the body is struggling to generate energy, <clears throat> and it's trying to upregulate a sort of backup energy supply through glycolysis uh, to sustain the energy needed to live a normal life. And if I could describe the state of depression in bipolar accurately, it's much more, unfortunately, akin to like a kind of form of suffocation or or deprivation of oxygen. Mm. And it's like a kind of sustained physiological state like this. And your body is telling you there's a real problem, there's an emergency, we need to deal with this. But there's nothing that you can do about it. uh, Whereas if you were deprived of oxygen in any other setting, you'd be able to take action. You're living with this state for sort of weeks at a time. 
And there's lots of indications of mitochondrial dysfunction that indicate this uh, in bipolar. There's uh, all sorts of markers like reduced phosphocreatine, which is the backup energy supply in the cell. There's a disruption of the citric acid cycle metabolites. And there's an increase in glutamate in the brain. And there's lots of markers you can find. Um, there's no diagnostic markers, but there are clear markers in the blood and the cerebral spinal fluid and in MRS testing that indicate this emergency state. So, um, so this is what I experienced, and I, I wanted to try and understand it uh, so that I could uh, have a normal life. I, I felt like I will not survive this, and I had a wife, and I wanted to have children, and I wanted to try to live some kind of normal life. So I just dedicated myself to trying to read about this every single day, every single day, reading papers, reading textbooks, speaking to people, interviewing professors, doctors, trying to form some understanding of it. And somehow this ended up being a PhD and I actually became an academic uh, sort of unintentionally hmm. through doing this. And uh, so I then started um, looking at it in, through the scientific lens. And I, I came to, to feel that this kind of neurotransmitted description of bipolar is a bit like you're driving on the highway and the car engine has gone on fire and you're kind of discussing the nitrogen and oxygen to smoke balance in the air conditioning of the car versus, you know, a more, <laughs> a more fundamental problem that needs to be addressed. And, and this is what you feel like as someone with bipolar. You feel like you're going down the highway with your engine on fire and people are trying to kind of uh, deal with the, the air conditioning in the, in the, in the cabinet of the car. And so really this uh, led to, I didn't actually come to this through my own um, investigation into the science. It was actually by accident. Um, I decided if I'm going to be very, very depressed, I told my wife, at least I'm not going to be chubby and depressed. I'm just going to try to at least lose some weight and be, you know, thin and depressed. So I, I did a sort of Atkins type diet. And I remember the, th uh, the second or third day into the diet, um, I was sitting on a bus and for the first time in over 15 years, I felt like the lights in my brain switched back on. And that's the best way I can describe it. It really felt like for 15 years of my life, my brain had not had the energy sufficient to sustain a normal life. And I felt the lights come back on, but not in a kind of hypomanic or manic way, but in a way that I could think clearly and calmly about situations in my life that I wasn't able to be objective about before. And it really felt like, you know, there was a power grid in a city that had been offline and this was just clicking back on one at a time. The lights were coming on and things were kind of reorganizing themselves. And the brain certainly has a, a real ability to heal itself when you provide it with enough energy. And it, and it really can't sustain its activity if it's deprived of energy, as is shown in lots of different metabolic uh, neurodegenerative conditions. And so I realized that some, I felt like something has shifted in the energy in my brain, and this has sustained itself for six years. And I've been on the diet almost the entire time for six years since then. Uh, and, and this led me to then to meet uh, Matt and Jan. And Matt had had a similar experience uh, with the diet and experiencing this shift in uh, energy and mood. And so they have funded us to do a research program here in Edinburgh. And we've been trying to get uh, traditional funding sources to fund this for quite a long time. And it was extremely difficult. Uh, they're not, uh, there's, this is a new area of research and some of these ideas are, yeah. are coming up in you know, recent years. So it was yeah. very difficult so, to find. Yeah. So hold that thought for a second. I want to get into the research, but, but your story is so incredible. I don't want to leave your story yet because I, I didn't realize that you started sort of low-carb Atkins diet 
for other reasons, not as like a direction to try and help with your bipolar, but just so to, to be healthier and not be overweight. And you just happen to surreptitiously notice that. So I'm curious during your treatment, like you said, you've had it for, you know, 15 years for a majority of your life was nutrition or diet ever discussed as a potential, as a potential intervention during that time? No. And, um, it's unfortunate because I, I do believe the people that the treated me always had the best intentions and were trying to act with the best knowledge that they had and the best understanding and it was just described to me as this neurotransmitter imbalance and when you go through these very catatonic and severe depressions you, you can't move sometimes for days at a time it's a very severe physiological state that you know is something more than this but it's hard to yeah. to know what you could do about it so i was recommended things like omega-3s um but i was also uh, given uh, sort of uh, antidepressant medications, um, things like this, and uh, and I can't blame anyone. Uh, and I, I'm very much an advocate for medication. It does work, and in fact, I think it, there's some evidence that it can work uh, through some of these metabolic mechanisms. But um, it wasn't something I ever considered. No, uh, it's quite yeah. embarrassing, really. I was trying to research this through uh, papers, and it was actually accidentally through trying to lose weight that I actually found something that was the most interesting thing. Well, interesting that you call it embarrassing. I mean, I think now because of everything, you know, looking back, you could say embarrassing, but at the time, I mean, I think it's clear there just wasn't enough information out there. And that is what you are trying to rectify with bipolar cast, your podcast with Matt, with your research studies. So now let's transition because now you are the co-principal investigator of a pilot trial of a ketogenic diet for bipolar disorder funded by the Bazooki brain research group. Um, and so really interesting that you were starting to say, and I apologize, I cut you off because I wanted a little more of your story, but you're starting to say it was, it's a challenge to get this type of study funded because I mean, I know like with weight loss or with type two diabetes, it's all about, you know, the drugs, the big pharma companies are sponsoring the trials. So I'd assume it's probably the same with bipolar and lifestyle interventions are much harder, harder to fund. Is that, is that what you're finding? Yeah, it's interesting because there's such there's such good evidence that there's a comorbidity between these metabolic conditions and mental illness, but there's there's very few kind of pilot trials and things that would lead on to funding of a clinical trial. So there's there's a quite a body of research showing the comorbidity between diabetes type two and bipolar disorder. You know, you're at two to three times the risk if you have bipolar. There's uh, over 50% of people with bipolar have insulin resistance of some kind. We, we actually had a study that was done by Professor Daniel Smith here in Edinburgh, who I work with on this trial that was looking at a quarter of a million Scottish patients. And you were at um, a significantly increased risk of any hospitalization for a mental health disorder if you have any form of diabetes. So there's lots of indications, but there's nothing that's really like a pilot trial or something that would lead directly into a clinical trial. So it was very difficult to find traditional funding. And this is where the Bazookis have stepped in and really they're really kickstarting, you know, the, this whole field of metabolic psychiatry, essentially. Yeah. And so what do you hope to accomplish with this pilot trial? Like what are your outcomes? What are you looking for? And what do you think it might mean for the future of this type of research? Well, I, I talked to a lot of people with bipolar disorder, hundreds, and even this year, probably over 100 people with bipolar disorder online and uh, through forums and through visiting support groups. And when I speak to people that have this condition, I feel like they live in a kind of underworld where they're not, their condition isn't understood, it's not recognized, and, and a lot of them are on benefits, unable to work, and they really only have one or two friends. It's, it, it's quite a tragic state for a lot of people to live in. Mm -hmm. 
So the, the main thing I care about is that, that we have some Scottish people that have the opportunity to try a different type of therapy for this diet. That's what I love to see is the opportunity to try a different way of treating this. And, and it, when I was speaking to these support groups around Scotland, there was a real sense of hope that maybe there is, they've tried every traditional approach to this and maybe this could help. So we have 25 people going on a ketogenic diet and uh, we're, going to, we're doing MRI scans, we're doing blood testing, metabolomics. And, and the goal is to really show that something uh, in the physiology is changing that we can measure uh, when people go on to a ketogenic diet. And there's only limited things you can show in a pilot study, obviously, with the sample size. But we hope to then uh, move on to larger trials, uh, all being well. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting. When it comes to sort of starting a movement with a research movement for a specific intervention or a specific field, you have to start somewhere. You can't start with the thousands of people, randomized controlled trials. So you're starting with a pilot study. And sort of regardless of what it shows, hopefully it will just draw attention to the field. So the bazookis aren't the only ones doing the lifting, right? This could bring in other sources of funding for future studies. So um, what's the timeline of the study? When do you think you'll start to see results that we can start talking about? So we'll have results uh, by the end of the year, probably. Uh, we've started uh, the first patients on the trial um, I actually went through the protocol a couple of weeks ago to see what it would be like for people and um, it was MRI scans and all sorts of, uh, you know, mood testing that we're doing. And so the first patients are now moving through that process. And yeah, by the end of the year, we hope to have some results. And I should I should point out as well that Shibani Seti at uh, Stanford, who of course you've spoken to, has been right. doing her trial and she's made a phenomenal difference in moving this forward. Um, Chris Palmer at Harvard has done all the case studies that have led up to this. Uh, people like Cynthia Kalkin have established evidence for insulin resistance. So there's a lot of researchers that are now starting to work on this and turn their attention to it, which is really great to see, actually. Yeah, it's nice to see the growing movement. Um, now, with your protocol, um, starting people with bipolar disorder on a ketogenic diet, I assume there are pretty strict enrollment criteria. Like, do they have to be well-controlled on medications with no severe um, depression or manic episodes within a certain time period? Or are you taking people who are a little less controlled and and maybe a little higher risk? So obviously our absolute priority is to make sure everyone is healthy and well through the trial. And so we're only taking people that are stable at the moment and we're mm -hmm. excluding kind of serious heart conditions, things like this. Um, and we've had such a huge interest in this. Uh, it's quite remarkable, actually. We, we went to one bipolar support group and we already had enough people trying to sign up to do the trial twice over. Oh, so, wow. so people with bipolar really want to investigate these types of treatment for the condition. And, um, and I think it's because um, we're in this epidemic of diabetes and insulin resistance. And they know about this because a lot of them have these conditions. And they know that we've shifted our diet away from our physiology to the point where they feel there's a, a mismatch. And, and they wonder whether yeah. this does affect the body. And, and there's certainly indications, I think, of that in the literature. Um, so yeah. yeah, mostly stable people that don't have serious conditions. What type of safety protocols do you have in place as they start the ketogenic diet? Because we've heard from Dr. Chris Palmer that it's not something people should just sort of start on their own with bipolar disorder. You know, you could trigger mania, you could have, uh, you may need to adjust your medication. So what kind of checkups and safety protocols do you have? So, so we're really, um, we're benefiting from Chris's advice on this as well and his experience yeah. in doing this for a long time and, and from Shibani's experience with her trial. 
and we're we're taking everything they've learned and implementing that. So we've got this really amazing dietitian called Helen Grossi, and she's been putting people on ketogenic diets for 20 years, and she monitors them constantly and is always uh, in contact with them. We have a psychiatrist, um, Daniel Smith, is supervising it. And actually, I, my father is involved in the research as someone who helped me to recover from my own illness. And uh, so he's a co-PI cool on this trial as well. And we all work together to keep in constant contact with the patients and address any concerns as they come up. So we just have to watch for things like uh, hypoglycemia, things like this. Um, so there's a lot of people involved in, in making it um, safe and, and and a good experience for the patients. Right, right, good. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a message that we have to keep portraying that although this is very encouraging, we don't want people just to do it on their own without clinical guidance and, and having safety protocols in the research studies is important for that reason. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. So now we, I mean, obviously we're focusing on the ketogenic diet because of your experience and Matt's experience and because of the research trials. But let me ask your opinion, and I know this is opinion and not necessarily based in, in what we know in science at the moment, but you know, do you think the ketogenic diet is the one or the best dietary intervention? Could a you know whole foods, um, you know low fat, uh, plant based diet work equally as well? If we get rid of the junk, if we get rid of the sweets, if it helps somebody maintain a healthy body weight and healthy metabolic health, do you think that could work equally as well, or do you think there's really something special and unique about a ketogenic diet? Well, one of the things that's interesting about ketogenic diet and bipolar is that uh, the ketogenic diet was, uh, as you know, was developed for pediatric epilepsy and for kids that were having seizures, you could get about a 50% reduction in about half of the patients that would try it. And actually, we're collaborating with the pediatric epilepsy service here in Edinburgh to do this trial. And so the the indication is that the anticonvulsants that are used in epilepsy are also used for bipolar disorder, many of the same uh, anticonvulsants. So there's, there's some common mechanism that might underlie these two forms of treatment, ketogenic diet and these um, anticonvulsants that are used in psychiatric conditions. So there is something special about the ketogenic diet that helps. And I, I've published some hypothesis papers on this that you can find online. And there's a huge body of literature on mitochondrial dysfunction and bipolar disorder, that there's energy dysregulation in the cell. And ketones, when glucose is not able to be burned uh, in the cell in the normal way, can act as they go through sort of alternate pathways, obviously, that can be metabolized uh, through, it bypasses a lot of problematic pathways uh, in glucose metabolism. So it's possible that these ketones act as a kind of alternate fuel source for the mitochondria, the kind of engines in the cell, and they give, uh, and they can kind of restore energy metabolism when it's uh, deficient. So I, I do think there's something specific and helpful about keto. Um, but there's obviously bipolar is polygenic and there's lots of things that contribute to it. And it could be that there's other diets that could work for other forms of bipolar disorder. So it, it, I, I, I don't discount any approach that could be useful like that. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And th that does make a lot of sense though, uh, about the sort of analogy with the seizure disorder treatment and the anti-seizure medications and the crossover for bipolar medications, which, which you can't get with other diets necessarily. But I think it's clear that just being healthier is a good starting point, right? Eating a healthier diet is a good starting point, but it may not be the most effective and most powerful, but doesn't mean you should discount it, I guess, would be one way to conclude. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And 
and there's it's the, the sort of metabolic therapies aren't they aren't totally foreign to psychiatry even i know chris palmer's highlighted that in the past they used this insulin shock therapy um in the 1940s and 50s wouldn't want to be subjected to that uh, <laughs> they, they essentially you know putting people into like comas using insulin and yeah. uh and, and there's also um th- there's also indications that some of the i've, I've just actually got I'll send you the preprint, but I have a paper coming out on this. And uh, there's indications that some of the the medications we use work through metabolic mechanisms. And so there's, there's a precedent for, and obviously there's a high comorbidity with type 2 diabetes and bipolar. So yeah. there's a lot of indications that this isn't just uh, people trying a diet and feeling better. There really is a scientific and mechanistic basis for it. And, uh, and yeah, I, I just completely agree that diet isn't considered to be a, a factor in any of these conditions and it's and it, it's a real shame i think yeah yeah well that 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 well it's really interesting to see uh how this field has taken off and i'm super encouraged about your research trial and like you said dr sethi's research trial and uh i can't wait to have you on again hopefully in, in by the end of the year to talk about some results and and see what you've learned and where we can go from there so if Thank- people want to learn more about, you know, what you're doing, the research you're doing, your your podcast, your blog, tell, where can they go to find more about you? Um, I have a blog, uh, ketobipolar.com. I uh, have a Twitter, Ian Campbell, PhD. And um, yeah, uh, thank you very much for drawing attention to this. I really appreciate it. Oh my goodness. Thank you. And, and, and one other point I think that's so important to make that you and Matt both make on the podcast is, is really how this is the bipolar is sort of like marginalized or sort of like swept under the rug and people don't want to talk about it. There's a stigma about it and there really shouldn't be, right? We don't have that same stigma about, about type two diabetes or about hypertension. And it's really kind of one in the same. So I, I applaud you. I mean, it takes, it takes a lot of courage to sort of step forward and share your own story and then sort of help try and uh, overcome that stigma. So thank you for doing that. That's really important for the, you know, all the people out there with bipolar who, who can feel a connection with this. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for having us on and, and, and letting us speak about our condition. I appreciate it. Now we're going to hear from Dr. Chris Palmer, who hopefully you've heard of before because he's been on the Diet Doctor podcast before, but he's clearly on the forefront of nutrition and metabolic health and psychiatry, and specifically for bipolar disorder. You can find him at chrispalmermd.com. He's a Harvard-trained psychiatrist um, who's still very involved in the education of um, clinicians and treating patients like he did with with Matt that we just heard. And he has a a wealth of knowledge on this topic, both as it stands now and sort of what we need uh, for the future of this field as well. So let's hear from Dr. Chris Palmer. Chris, it's it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, Brett. Of course, of course. Well, we just heard the sort of powerful and incredible story from, from Matt Bazuki and everything he went through and the role that nutrition, specifically a ketogenic diet, as well as other lifestyle interventions played for his treatment alongside medical therapy. But I think it's pretty clear that when we hear stories like that, that it's the exception, not the rule, that nutritional interventions were given such a priority in treating a severe case of bipolar disorder. Um, So I'm curious to hear from you what your take is on sort of the general field of psychiatry and how often nutrition is used as an intensive intervention. Nutrition is almost never used as an intensive intervention in psychiatry. I I think even, even people who practice a relatively new field of nutritional psychiatry 
we'll often talk about it augmenting current treatments. And, uh, and oftentimes the way they talk about it, um, they will, you know, recommend fruits and vegetables, Mediterranean diet, other diets. And it really almost gets talked about in the way of, you know, hey, just making people healthier has to help your brain, right? Um, they, they often do not use the interventions in the way that I'm using the intervention. So I'm using the ketogenic diet similar to what epilepsy doctors are using the, the ketogenic diet. It, it is a primary treatment to stop very serious, sometimes life-threatening symptoms as a monotherapy. Um, and a lot of people in the nutritional psychiatry field, even though there are very few of them, uh, don't even think about nutritional psychiatry in that way. Instead, they think about it as just a general health and wellness um, kind of strategy that might make somewhat of a difference. Yeah, it's a great point about the different philosophies. Uh, let's just make you healthy and eat a good diet, avoid the junk food versus this is an actual intervention with a prescription, just like you would do a medication. And, and it's interesting. So I went on the website for the National Institute for Mental Health and for treatments of bipolar disorder, they talk about meds and psychotherapy, electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation, supplements, and exercise, but no mention of diet. And then when you go to WebMD, they say there's no specific bipolar diet, but they say eating a balance of protective nutrient-dense foods, including fresh fruits and vegetables, legumes, whole grains, lean meats, cold water fish, eggs, low-fat dairy, soy products. So what you would expect for the, the traditional medical field to say, you know, just be healthier and eat a healthy diet. So I guess one of the questions is why is there that disconnect? And I think it has to come down to, you know, they say, well, we can't point to the studies in the literature showing that there's one specific dietary intervention. So are we just sort of in our own echo chamber of a ketogenic diet saying this must be beneficial, even though we don't have necessarily RCTs to, to support it? I mean, I would think that's sort of the belief of the, the more mainstream psychiatry community, that that's how they see this. Is that accurate? What do you think? I think for mainstream psychiatry, in terms of professionals who have not heard me speak, who have never heard about the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, um, yes, that is exactly what they think. They think about, you know, the, the role of diet in bipolar disorder or schizophrenia is to avoid the problems of metabolic disorders, which we know are extraordinarily common in these patients. So people diagnosed with bipolar disorder are much more likely to develop obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and they're also much more likely to die an early death. And depending on what study you look at, it's anywhere from 10 to upwards of 30 years of life reduction. Wow. So, um, so, so most of the field of psychiatry is focused on, let's see if we can prevent some of that. Let's see if we can mitigate the harms of our medications and or whatever reasons these, you know, metabolic disorders are more common in this population so that we can help people live healthier lives, happier lives, longer lives, but they don't really see it as an intervention for a brain disorder. Mm -hmm. um, but the exciting news 
the really exciting news is over the last few years, at least in my experience, when I talk with neuroscientists who are focused on mental disorders, when I talk with psychiatrists and I explain all of the neuroscience that we already have, that we already have, when I tell them about the randomized controlled trials that we already have for epilepsy, they get excited because we use epilepsy treatments every day in tens of millions of people for bipolar disorder in particular. And many, several of them are FDA approved in the treatment of bipolar disorder. Medications like Depakote, Lamictal, um, those are FDA approved as mood stabilizers. Um, and so when I let people know that this diet can stop seizures, even when something like Depakote or Lamictal doesn't, they get really excited. And when I let them know we have a robust evidence base, in fact, we have two Cochrane reviews that were both positive that suggested benefits, at least in children with treatment-resistant epilepsy, um, they get excited about, wow, what, like, what is this diet doing? And then they often have a lot of questions. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a good starting point, but most clinicians are probably going to have questions and then not really know where to go. Like maybe not know how to start the diet, not know how to monitor people on the diet. And, and so there is that sort of hole there. Um, so it sounds like we need kind of maybe more studies, RCTs, which, you know, at Stanford, Dr. Shabani Sethi and colleagues are working on a study. And, and I think Dr. Campbell's working on one in, in, in the UK. So they'll have these randomized controlled trials. Um, but do you think that will be enough for people to say, okay, we're going to do this. But then when they say, how do we do it? Where do they turn? That is the huge gap right now. Yeah. And unfortunately, I, I hear from people sometimes on a daily basis from around the world. I saw your presentation. I heard about a patient or several patients who did really well. I want this treatment. Where can I go to get this treatment? And unfortunately, we do not have a workforce trained up. So right now, I think the best solution is that there are licensed ketogenic dietitians who know how to do the epilepsy version of this diet. And there are, you know, countless mental health clinicians. And I think they can partner, they can be a team, and this can be a team effort. So a mental health clinician, a psychiatrist or nurse practitioner, for instance, could pair up with a ketogenic dietitian, and together they could do this treatment. The mental health professional will oversee the mental health aspects. They will help assess whether this intervention is working. They'll help keep the patient safe. They'll titrate medications as needed. But the ketogenic dietitian can step right in and get people on a ketogenic diet. For people with maybe less serious disorders, maybe mild depression, anxiety, other types of disorders, some patients might be able to try this on their own. Um, and or clinicians might be able to refer them to diet doctor, for instance. And uh, just, you know, they've got pretty much everything you need right there in one shop. And uh, you can read information, you can get recipes, you can get meal plans, you can get support, you can get everything you need. So for people who don't have serious mental disorders, and when I say serious I guess I mean dangerous symptoms. So symptoms that endanger the safety of the individual or other people, 
that becomes a serious disorder in my mind. And it, I don't mean to disparage or minimize other people's suffering or say they don't have serious disorders too. Right. All disorders, all health problems are serious, but there are dangerous and life-threatening symptoms and there are symptoms that are less dangerous and life-threatening. And I think for the dangerous life-threatening ones, people really should work with a mental health clinician. Yeah, it's a, it, I think it's a similar analogy that if you're you know, relatively healthy and just want to lose weight or if you have pre-diabetes, not on medications, go to diet doctor, start a ketogenic diet, a low-carb diet, you'll be fine. But if you're on insulin or sulfonylureas or SGLT2 inhibitors, you're on medications for type 2 diabetes, you better be working with your clinician um, as you embark on a low-carb or ketogenic diet. And same thing for, for mental health. There's definitely that line in the sand where you can do it on your own and where you shouldn't be doing it on your own. Um, and so we, we've talked about mental or metabolic health and the connection to mental health. And I was really surprised when I saw the study showing that people with bipolar disorder who have insulin resistance have a three times increased risk of a chronic illness and an eight times increased risk of a poor response to medical therapy. But yet some of the medications used can induce weight gain and insulin resistance. So doesn't that seem like sort of a circular problem chasing your own tail that you may be helping one area, but maybe making another area worse for the same condition? It, it's, it's a great point and a highly controversial one. Yeah. It is, it is one that I am prepared to discuss and take on. It's, it's difficult to give quick answers to this because the, the, yeah. the, the, the one thing that I don't want is for patients with bipolar disorder who are on mood stabilizers that do cause weight gain, that do cause insulin resistance or even have caused diabetes. I don't want them to abruptly stop those medications thinking, oh my gosh, if this is making me worse, I'm going to stop it. Because right. I, I can tell you now that is highly, highly dangerous. You could end up in the hospital or worse. You could end up in a dangerous situation, end up dead. Um, so not a good idea to take it upon yourself. But I am in particular interested in that question because there are, there's, you know, there's another research study that we have 15,000 children followed from age one to 24. And what that study found was that the insulin resistance comes first, that children starting at age nine who had the highest levels of insulin resistance were five times more likely to be at risk for being diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder by the time they turned 24. Five times, that means 500% increased risk. That is not trivial. That is a major, major risk. And what that, what that study tells us is, at least according to that data, the insulin resistance seems to come first and might actually be playing a role in the development of what we call bipolar disorder. And we have other studies that, that similarly suggest that pattern that insulin resistance may be a trait that runs in families and that that might make people vulnerable to developing a serious mental illness. And, uh, and so when we think about treatments, I agree, it may in fact be pouring salt on the wound, just like with diabetes. It's interesting that sometimes metabolic treatments can make the metabolic disorder worse. 
So we yeah. know that sulfonylureas and insulin both can cause weight gain, and weight gain makes people with diabetes have more, higher levels of insulin resistance and need more medication. So once people start down that path of, for instance, starting insulin, um, usually it's a downward spiral. Usually it means that you're going to start gaining weight. You're going to develop even more insulin resistance over time. And we may not be serving people well with that treatment strategy. Um, I do think the same thing may in fact be happening in the field of psychiatry and that we are using treatments that can help in the short run because they are metabolic treatments, but they are impairing metabolism actually. And that that can actually decrease symptoms in the short run paradoxically, but in the long run, it might actually lead to a chronic course of illness. Yeah, that, yeah, it's a really good analogy with the diabetes medications. And same thing, if someone is on you know, 100 units of insulin and just stops it because they think it's making me gain weight and worsening my condition, then they're going to end up in the hospital with blood sugars of five, six, seven hundred. So they can't do that. But, but it's something we need to be aware of as we sort of design our treatment program, which should include treatments for metabolic dysfunction, which are predominantly lifestyle-based treatments. So, you know, when we hear these dramatic stories of someone who has had such a a, a refractory case of bipolar disorder and so many treatments didn't work, and then it sounds like, you know, the ketogenic diet came in and saved the day and it's like the miracle therapy that'll work for everybody, but it, you know, that we can sort of, I can see we can get that impression, but that's probably not the impression you want people to get, I would guess. It's not. I, I... I think I want people to have an impression somewhere in between. Um, yeah. And and I there is no doubt in my mind the ketogenic diet can be a life-changing and life, like a um, somewhat almost miraculous treatment for some patients. It really can. And I've seen that now in a number of patients. Um, so I think that it is a very serious consideration and... For people with treatment-resistant illness, they should at least consider this as a possible strategy to try with their mental health professional. Um, Do I think the ketogenic diet will save the day for every human being on the planet and cure all mental illness, and we will stamp out all mental disorders with the ketogenic diet? I don't. Um, And that's because there are many things that can affect brain metabolism and brain function. Diet is one of them. But, but the way that one of the things that I really want to stress is the way that I think about the ketogenic diet is not necessarily even that the person's diet prior to the illness was causing the symptoms. I look at it somewhat differently. So for instance, people who have a, have a horrible trauma or abuse history can have higher than normal levels of cortisol. Cortisol itself can cause insulin resistance. And we know that cortisol is associated with a lot of mental disorders. Hmm. And, and so the person may or may not have been following a good or bad diet. The trauma and the high levels of cortisol in and of themselves may have been contributing to both the psychiatric disorder and also the insulin resistance 
And yet, even if your problem started because of trauma or cortisol, doing a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet can actually restore metabolic health um, because it provides an alternate source of fuel. It actually has a tremendous number of other effects on metabolism and, um, and it can be healing for some people. On top of all of that, I do want to just make the point that the ketogenic diet by itself for a lot of people is not the only treatment. It's not like it's this one and done miracle treatment. You're cured. Everyone, including Matt, needs to get good sleep, might need to include exercise, might need to reduce stress levels. Um, you know, if people are using drugs and alcohol excessively, that needs to be talked about and managed because that's mm -hmm. going to play a role in a mental illness too. And simply going on a ketogenic diet isn't going to miraculously make all of these things happen. All of these things can happen. And sometimes the benefits of going on a ketogenic diet can give people enough of a mood lift, um, can help their brain function better so that they can think more clearly, they're more motivated, they can manage a schedule, they, they can tolerate stress of a diet better. So sometimes, um, sometimes being in ketosis or being on a low-carb or ketogenic diet can be the critical piece to then get your alcohol use disorder under control or to then be able to sleep more regularly and feel rested when you wake up. Um, but yeah. those things do need attention and they need to be actively discussed in treatment. And sometimes just going on a diet won't make those things all fall into place. Yeah, good point. So one, one cog in the wheel of a multidisciplinary intervention. Now, there's a couple reasons why a ketogenic diet may help in this situation. And one is the improved metabolic health, reduced insulin resistance. One is ketones themselves having an effect on the brain. You know, one is switching the, the fuel and the metabolism of the brain. So in your opinion, and I know this is sort of outside of current research, but in your opinion, is it the ketosis so that taking ketone esters and ketone supplements may be equally as beneficial as a ketogenic diet? Or do you think it's the, the components of the diet itself that, that have the impact? What would you guess uh, would be the main factor there? My strong guess is that it is the diet itself um, and that if you continue to follow a, a standard American diet, for instance, and simply take a ketone supplement, even two or three times a day, you likely will not get the same benefit. You may not get any, you might get some benefit. You may get no benefit. I, I base that on a few things. So I base that on number one, I've tried it with patients. I've, I've gone there because it's so much easier to swallow ketones in a bottle, right. than have to change your diet. So I've right. done it. And at least in my limited experience, it doesn't seem to work, unfortunately. The bigger sample that we have is in epilepsy. This diet is still used in tens of thousands of people around the world for their treatment resistant epilepsy. Ketones, exogenous ketones have been available for many years now. There are no documented case reports published in the medical literature 
of any human being being able to stop their seizures using exogenous ketones alone. There mm. aren't any, to the, to the best of my knowledge, if I'm wrong on that, please shoot me an email with that study. But I am not aware of even one case report. And trust me, I can't imagine that clinicians and patients and parents have not tried this because swallowing ketones is a lot easier than doing this diet. And so I can only imagine that many people with epilepsy have in fact tried it and it has not worked. Um, and so they continue to use the ketogenic diet as a treatment. And again, I just, I can't ignore the overlap between epilepsy treatment and mental health treatment. You know, the, the diet has many roles other than just ketones themselves. We know that the diet alters neurotransmitter levels, which is huge in psychiatry. It alters calcium channel regulation in the brain, which is also huge. There's one study published in a prominent journal called Cell that actually made the argument based on an animal model that the primary mechanism of action might actually be changes in the gut microbiome. And that those changes in the gut microbiome may actually result in an anti-seizure effect. Changing your diet will make will change the gut microbiome. Swallowing a bottle of ketones probably will not result in those same microbiome changes. Um, so, you know, this diet's also lowering insulin levels and lowering glucose levels. But if you're eating a donut, you're still going to have very high insulin and glucose levels. Swallowing a bottle of ketones with that donut probably isn't going to change that significantly. It might make a little difference, but it's not going to make a huge difference. So yeah. for now, for better or worse, I think it's the diet. But I'm very interested in research. Can, you know, is there a less restrictive version of the diet? Could we supplement with ketones and maybe get by with just a low-carb diet that's maybe not even a ketogenic diet per se, where people can eat some fruit or some carbohydrates every day if that's what they really want to do? And if that makes it a more sustainable diet for some people, and results in the same benefits, that would be a win-win for everybody. But sure. at this point, we need more research, unfortunately, or we need yeah. at least more clinical case reports of like what's even working for a few handful of human beings. Yeah, very good. Well, I appreciate your, your input on that. So you've been you've done so much for this field, both on an individual basis with your, you know, working with individual patients like Matt and some of the other patients that you've been sort of very public speaking about. And then the number of talks you've given and podcasts you've been on, and now your upcoming book, you're clearly on the forefront of this, of this field, which is in its infancy. I think we can say for bipolar, but you make the point is definitely not in its infancy for a seizure disorder and that there is the overlap there. So it seems like the future is very bright, but you know, if people want to follow you and hear more from you, where would you direct them to go to, to access what you have to say? The easiest place to find me is on my website, chrispalmermd.com. Uh, I am, so there you can read some of the articles. You can see other interviews and things that I've done. Um, you can find out a little bit more about the book. Uh, and if you are on social media, I'm probably most active on Twitter for better or worse. <laughs> hoping, to, hoping to change that and at least start posting a little more on other sites. But 
for right now, I'm most active on Twitter. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that as well. Very good. Well, we definitely look forward to the book coming out in November. Um, and just love to hear from you and hear more. You know, you're, you, like you said, you're going to be on a number of different shows and podcasts, and that's great because getting the word out is definitely the first step. And you have been on the forefront of getting the word out. So thank you for your work with that. And thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Brett. Well, that ends this episode on bipolar disorder and ketogenic diets and lifestyle therapies. We've heard some from some, I consider very brave people, you know, Matt Pazuki sharing his story and the journey he's been through, Dr. Ian Campbell, the journey he's been through and how he turned that into a, a career now doing research on bipolar disorder. And of course, Dr. Chris Palmer, who really has been on the forefront of of getting information out there and being, being very public with podcasts and talks and now his upcoming book about the connection between metabolic health, uh, mitochondrial function, mental health, and how a ketogenic diet and lifestyle therapy should be uh, much more common in the treatment of bipolar disorder. I hope this was helpful for you to learn more about this. Certainly fascinating whether you have bipolar disorder or know somebody bi with bipolar disorder, whether that's the case or not. I still think it's, it's a fascinating uh, subject that we're going to hear a lot about in the future. And of course, again, we have to recognize um, the Bazuki Brain Research Group and all the fantastic work they are helping because funding for things like this is difficult. Big Pharma is not going to fund this, no question about that. Um, so funding has to come from somewhere, so from private groups like the Bazuki Group. So if, if you know of anybody who is looking to uh, fund research, uh, has any interest in lifestyle therapies, mental health disorders. Uh, this is, you know, the bazookis are someone who are really, you should be in contact with to see about collaboration and, and future um, potential for funding because this is a growing field that's going to need some help uh, to continue to grow. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode on the Diet Doctor podcast and we'll see you here next time.